everyone. Welcome again to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location in Belmont, Massachusetts. My name is Brian, and I pastor that location. It's good to talk to you again. All of us have limited time, energy, and resources. And whenever we have an opportunity to spend some of our time or energy or resources, we have to do somewhat of a cost-benefit analysis to determine if the opportunity in front of us is worth the expense of our time or our energy or our monetary resources. We have to ask ourselves, is the benefit I'm going to receive worth the expense that I'm required to give up? It's how we determine our calendars and it's how we determine our relationships. It's just natural then that we would take this sort of thinking into our spiritual life. I'm going to suggest to you today that our superficial cost-benefit analysis structure causes us to say no to opportunities God gives us, and because we say no, we end up missing out on benefits we may not see on the surface. I'll tell you what I mean over the next few moments. So I hope you enjoy this, and I hope you'll listen closely, because I believe God has something He would like to say to you. I bet, I bet uh, there are two types of people in the room this morning. There are those of you who saw that it was snowed three, four, five, six inches, however much snow you got this morning. And well, some of you might not be in a situation where you have to make this decision, whether or not you're going to shovel or snowblow. But if you have a sidewalk, if you have a driveway, you now had a decision this morning, right? And there were some of you here this morning that you saw that there was snow on the ground and you said to yourself, I have a responsibility now. So I, you got out the shovel, you got out the snowblower, and you cleared all of that snow, the sidewalk and the driveway, and you're ready to go. There were some of you that woke up this morning, and you saw that there was snow on the ground, and you saw that, that it, was, it, was, uh, you know, it, it was there, and you also saw the weather forecast, and you know in 36 hours it's going to be gone anyway. And so you just drove over it this morning, Right? Some of you are sitting here this morning, you just drove over it, didn't matter, you walked through it, you drove over it, it's going to be gone anyway, right? We, had, we have two types of people in my own household. Half of us this morning were just going to drive over it, and half of us thought it should be shoveled. I'm not going to tell you who, uh, who thinks what, but I'll tell you I was out there shoveling this morning uh, and clearing it off. But what, uh, when we have to make decisions in our life, okay, when we have to make choices, I'll tell you what we most often do. We do a little bit what we would call a cost-benefit analysis, even on the small decisions, to shovel or not to shovel, right? We do a cost-benefit analysis, and we say to ourselves, okay, is the cost of going out there this morning and snowblowing and shoveling or whatever it is that we have to do worth the benefit of having a nice, clean pavement uh, when I know that it's going to melt Anyway, that cost-benefit analysis is something that we have to do, and we don't just do it when it's time to shovel. I would say that on many of our decisions, this is how we decide how we're going to spend our time, how we're going to spend our energy, and how we're going to spend our money, right? What is worth our investment? What is worth our time or our energy or our money? We think about those things, and that's the way we make our decisions, Many of you know that uh, Lori and I were expecting our third child in, in June, June 3rd, right? We're expecting our third child, and so we are, right? Yes, okay, good. So June 3rd, uh, we're expecting our third child, which is great. 
And a couple months ago, we said to ourselves, you know, the benefit of having this child is definitely worth whatever comes our way and the cost. And now we're not so sure, but, but we'll see how, how it works out. <laughs> no, it's going to be great. But, uh, but yesterday, we had to go out shopping for a new vehicle because three car seats is very different than two car seats. And uh, my old, you know, little sedan is just not going to work to have three car seats. And so we went out and we went to a couple of different dealerships. And, and when you make a decision like that in your life, you start doing a cost-benefit anal- analysis because you can spend a whole lot of money on a vehicle. And so you start saying to yourself, okay, this one, this one has a steering wheel. Is that necessary? Is that worth the cost? Yes. This one has, uh, will drive itself and, and puts cold air through the seat when it's hot outside. Those are unbelievable things to have. But if we want this car, we have to sell our house. So what is the cost and benefit, right? What is the cost and the benefit? We do this all the time when it's time to spend money, when it's time to make a calendar decision, when it's time to spend our energy. Is the thing that I'm choosing to do going to be worth the effort that I have to put out? And when it's worth the effort, we uh, go and do it. When we say, yeah, the benefit will be worth this effort, we do it. But when we say, you know what, I'm not going to get a return on this like I want, we will end up saying no. And the worst thing that can happen is to get caught in one of those situations. This is what we don't want, right? To get caught in one of those situations where we are exerting energy, time, and money, and we just feel like we're getting nothing in return. Those are the situations we really want to avoid. Like when your friend asks you to help them move and you feel like you have to go and you have to do it and you're doing it out of obligation, right? You're trying to do the right thing, but there's really very little benefit for you. The only benefit is that maybe you're storing up a favor that you can cash in later. And there's those situations. And many of us want to try and avoid those types of situations. We want to find the situations where we say, okay, I'm going to put out my time. I'm going to put out my energy. I'm going to put out my resources. But the benefit that I'm going to receive is worth it. It's worth those things. Now, the thing I want us to think about this morning is the fact that because that's how we evaluate most of our decisions in life, when we're choosing how we're going to work and how long we're going to work, what type of job we're going to work, whether or not we're going to the store today, what kind of clothes we're going to buy, whether or not we're going to let our kids participate in certain activities, whether we're going to participate in certain activities, because this cost-benefit analysis framework is how we evaluate almost all the decisions that we make on a daily basis down to as simple as to whether or not to shovel this morning. We naturally bring this type of question into our relationship with God, right? And we say to ourselves, when it's time to make a decision, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to do the things that we hear about in church, we ask ourselves, okay, well, what is the benefit to me if I'm going to do that? So the pastor gets up every year and says, you should read your Bible every day this year. And you, just, and you evaluate in your head, okay, that's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of intentionality. And what is the benefit that I'm going to receive out of that? Am I really going to receive that sort of benefit? If we can convince ourselves that we're going to receive a great benefit, then we'll participate in the activity. Same thing with anything we decide. When it's time to make the big decision about whether or not to follow Jesus and surrender our life to him, That's the big one. And we ask ourselves, is the benefit of doing that worth the cost of doing that? So now I'm not going to do everything I want to do. Now I'm going to have friends and family that are going to look at me like I've I've lost my mind. Is the cost of all of that 
worth the benefit then of following Jesus. And we bring this sort of framework into all of our spiritual and faith decisions as well. And the question I want us to think about just for a couple of moments this morning is, is that a good question for us to ask? Is that, is that a good question for us to ask? Does that question have value when it comes to following Jesus and following God? There's this story. There's this story at the end of chapter one of the book of Joshua that we're going to look at. And it's really easy to skip over this story. We had the first two weeks, if you were with us, and it was, these are kind of big verses in the story of the Bible. We started out, and Moses has passed away. Moses, my servant, is dead, the first words of Joshua, or after the death of Moses are the first words of Joshua. And so we have this sort of big moment, right, where Moses is now dead, and Joshua is taking over. And then after that, we had... Uh, the verses that many of us have on post-it notes on our mirror, we have them uh, on our car, they make up uh, the, the screens on our, the screensavers on our computers, the be strong and courageous verses, right? Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Those were the verses. And it would be really easy for us to jump right from those verses to chapter two of the book of Joshua, which if you're familiar with the book is the story of Rahab. And that's an exciting story as well. But rather than jump to Joshua chapter 2, we're going to stay in these couple of verses here for just a moment. And we're going to talk about something that I think is an important little story that has big implications for your life and for my life. And it all has to do with this question. How do we think through the cost and the benefits of doing what God is asking us to do? Now, before we get into this, I want to say that certainly there are great individual benefits to choosing to follow Jesus. I think you might say to yourself when I say, well, is this the right question to ask? You may jump and you may say, well, of course he's going to say no. He's setting us up. He's going to say, no, don't never ask that question. But I'm not necessarily saying that this morning. There are great individual and personal benefits to choosing to follow Jesus with your life. Top of the list has to be that I believe that if you choose to follow Jesus, a relationship between you and God that is currently broken is restored. There is salvation offered. Salvation is the church word. There's salvation offered through Jesus Christ, who is death and resurrection on the cross. And certainly that is a massive personal benefit to know that I am saved, that my relationship with God is restored, that I am guaranteed eternity with him when this life is over. Huge personal benefit. And then there's also the benefits we talked about last week with strength and courage, knowing God's promises are sure, knowing God's presence goes with us, knowing that no matter what we face in this life, we have strength and courage, not because of who we are and what happens in this world, but because of who God is as he sits over this world. The peace, joy, hope that come through knowing Jesus are all extremely important. So I want you to know I'm not saying to you this morning that this is a bad framework to come into our faith with. That certainly there is a cost associated with following Jesus. Jesus talks about that. There is a cost associated with following Jesus, but the benefits of following Jesus, the individual benefits greatly outweigh whatever the cost might be. However, I would say to you this morning, that if that is the only framework with which we view 
following Jesus and following God. If the only way we view it is to weigh the individual costs and benefits against each other and see which one weighs more, and that's the only way we make our decisions, that's the only way we act on things, is how am I going to benefit? How am I personally going to benefit when it's time to make decisions about following God and following Jesus? If that's the only thing that we, that we take and we put on one side, we say, okay, if I follow Jesus, then he gets control of my life. If I follow Jesus, then I might lose some friendships and some relationships. If I follow Jesus, then, then these things are going to happen. But the benefits I get are so much greater. If that's the only framework is taking my individual perspective and putting it in that sort of framework, we are going to miss a much greater work that God is calling us to do. Then while that's not a bad analysis to do, and I would encourage you, and I would love to have the conversation with you, if you have yet to follow Jesus with your life, I'd love to talk through that with you. But if that's the only framework we use, then we're going to miss a bigger work that God's calling us to. And in this moment in Joshua, there was one group of the people of Israel, one group of, a smaller group of Israelites, that if they just filtered everything through an individual lens, they were going to miss the much greater work that was about to take place. And so Joshua has to come to them in these verses and say, listen, if you were to look at this only as yourself, you're not going to join us in the work. But Joshua calls them to look at it differently. I'll tell you what I mean. This is what happens in Joshua chapter 1, verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, if you were with us over the last couple of weeks, you, you kind of know what's going on here, right? Uh, the people of Israel, they've come out of slavery in Egypt. They've spent 40 years wandering the desert, wandering through the wilderness. God promised them a section of land a long time ago. And now the people are getting ready under Joshua's command to go and take charge of the land that God gave to them. It's called the promised land is the word you might hear. And so Joshua sends messengers through the people, the whole people, and he says, get ready because in three days... We are going over this Jordan River, and we're going to take this land. But then he talks to a smaller group, and to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said. Now, who are those people? We're going to take pause for just a moment and talk about who these people are. Because if we don't understand who these people are and why Joshua is speaking to them specifically, we're really not going to know what the lesson is that God has for us. So we're going to get into some geography and some history, and your eyelids might get heavy, but stick with me, stick with me okay? Because I think the benefit is going to be worth the cost of the next few moments. You might be familiar with this part of the world. This is a, a modern satellite image of the Middle East. And if we were to impose uh, the names of the modern-day countries onto this map, this is the part of the world that we're talking about. This is the part of the world that, that, that this action is taking place with God's people, the Israelites, getting ready to possess the lands. And specifically, uh, I put a star on the map that you can see here. This is about the area where God's people are waiting to cross the Jordan and take the land. So they're going to move over the Jordan River. You can see the Jordan River there flows between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And they're 
camped on the west side or the east side of the Jordan. And the land that Joshua is saying we are going to go and conquer, the land that is to be conquered, is on the west side of the Jordan. Okay? And so this is all happening in an area of the world that, that many of us are familiar about, that we hear about on the news uh, on, on a nightly basis. And so God's people are getting ready to cross the Jordan River when he says, take three days, we're crossing the Jordan and we're going to take the land. This is exactly what he's talking about. Now, here's what happened a number of years ago, and it's all written down in Numbers chapter 32. This happened when Moses was still alive. So we said at the beginning of Joshua, Moses passed away. When Moses was still alive, Israel, the Israelites, all right, stick with me, Israel is made up of 12 different tribes, Okay, 12 tribes. Now, when Moses was still alive, two and a half of those tribes, the Reubenites, like the sandwich, if that helps you, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they came to Moses and they said, Moses, on the east side of the Jordan, we found land that, was, that, was, that is very good for all of our cattle and our sheep, and we'd like to set up camp there. And Moses makes them a deal. In Numbers 32, he says to the people, okay, to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, you can set up camp east of the Jordan River. You can build homes for your children. You can build folds for your livestock. But here's the deal. At some point, the other nine and a half tribes are going to cross the Jordan They're going to cross the Jordan and go after the land that I've given them. When that time comes, you have to go with them. And they said, okay, deal. Now, why would Moses make this deal with them? Because he knows what can happen when we're only thinking about ourselves and our own individual benefits. He knew that they would go and they would set up camp on the east side of the Jordan, that they would build homes for their children, that they would build folds for their livestock. And then a couple years later, when it was time for Joshua to take the other nine and a half tribes west of the Jordan River, that they would come back to these two and a half tribes and say, get ready to go. We are going to take the land that God's given us. And this tribe would be sitting in their lazy boys in their beautiful homes. And their kids would be already be in the school district that they wanted their kids to be in. And they would have their crops growing and everything would be set up. And they would look back and they'd say, no, 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 no. We already have our land. We're very comfortable. You guys can go and figure out the west of the Jordan. And so when Joshua comes to this group of people, this is what he says. He says, remember, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. That's the land east of the Jordan. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in that land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise." 
And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Here's what I think Moses and Joshua knew. Moses and Joshua knew that the idol of comfort is a dangerous thing. That the idol of comfort is a very dangerous thing. It was a dangerous thing in the ancient world. It's a dangerous thing in your life and my life. And the idol of comfort looks like this. It looks like us struggling and striving to get ourselves to a good place in life. A place where our head is in a healthy place, our heart's in a healthy place, finances could be in a healthy place, families in a healthy place. And we all struggle in this life to get to that sort of place. And many of us, you will come to church because we believe that being a part of church and being a part of the community and following Jesus with our lives helps us to that end. Not only do we, does, it offer, does God offer us salvation, but he offers us from that salvation the life that will give us the best life today, that we will have the, the, our families will be better, our individual life will be better, our financial resources will be, will be in better position, we'll learn how to take care of things in this world because we've been a part of the community and following Jesus Christ. But what happens when we find ourselves in a good place is that we begin to worship that idol of comfort and we say, I have finally reached the space that I've been looking for my whole life. Finally, after all these years of struggle, finally, after all these hours spending time in, in church and thinking through things, I, have, I am in a good place. And so when someone else who is in need in the community comes to me, the temptation is to say, my comfort is more valuable than helping the person who is in need. That it's very easy for us to say, listen, I cannot risk, I cannot risk this comfort that I have worked so hard to get that I have tried so hard to find, to risk all of that in order to help those who remain in need, the risk is too great. And Moses and Joshua knew if they didn't continue to tell these tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, you still have a responsibility to help the whole, that they could very well settle into the land and leave the rest of their brothers all by themselves, to fight for this land. One of the things that we are told again and again throughout this book is that the cost of being a part of the whole, that the cost of being a part of the community is worth the benefit that we will then receive. That message happens throughout this book. That the cost of being part of the whole, and we all know that there's a cost to being part of the whole. That sometimes it's just easier to walk into church and worry about myself. It's about me and Jesus. It's about whether I'm saved. It's about whether I feel good today. We know that that is easier to walk in and just think that way. But time and time again, we hear throughout this book that the benefit of being a part of the whole, the community, is worth more, is worth the cost of what it takes to be a part of the community. 
In fact, over and over again, we are called not the individuals of God. We are called the family of God. And the idea in that picture is that we are a community that sacrifices not just for ourselves so that we benefit. We are a community that sacrifices for one another. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 6, when Moses is talking to the people, he asked them a question that I think is an important question for us to ponder. Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben in verse 6, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? And then he said, Will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given him? Given to them. And what Moses says to the people in those two questions is he says this If you put your personal contentment and well being above the corporate good, that will take down the entire benefit to the whole. If you are more worried about your well being and you're going to say, We'll let our brothers go to war while we'll just sit here in comfort, you are going to reduce the benefit to the entire community. And so Moses says to them simply, don't do that. Make a deal with me now. When this happens years down the road, that you and go will fight. It will cost you something. You'll be comfortable in your homes. You're going to leave your wives. You're going to leave your children. But promise me that you'll go and do it for the good of the whole because the corporate benefit will be better than the individual. There was this moment in the Gospels where, where Jesus was walking with his disciples, and they came to him, and they, they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And Jesus teaches them a prayer that if you grew up in church, uh, you've probably heard before. And he says this. This is the version that you see in the Gospel of Matthew. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think that for much of my life, I have prayed that prayer, said those words, and never realized that all the pronouns are first-person plural pronouns. I say, give us this day our daily bread, but I mean in my head, God, give me today what I need. I say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, but what I mean is, God, keep me safe, protect me. And it's interesting to me that when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, the prayer that Jesus gave them that, would, that is the model of how we should be praying was not the individualistic prayer that most of us tend to pray. I come into God and I say, God, here's how I feel. Here's what I think. Here's my praise to you. Here's the request that I have. Amen. I'm done. But the model that Jesus gives us includes the community throughout the whole prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Every pronoun that's in the prayer is in the first person plural that refers to the people who are praying. 
And Jesus was saying something, I think, to his disciples through this and to you and to me, that this is always about the whole. We can make it very individualistic, and certainly there are individual benefits. But the benefit of the community is to outweigh the benefit of the individual. There's a book uh, out there called Give and Take. Many of you know I'm a, I'm a big fan of a genre of books that I've belovedly named the airport books. They're the books they sell at the airport kiosk. And one of the airport books is written by a guy named Adam Grant. He's a professor at the Wharton School of Business. And in Give and Take, he cites two studies that I think are pretty interesting. They both were done in 2006 uh, at a little school named Harvard that's just down the street here. And a couple of professors at Harvard, uh, they started doing a study in 2006, and they wanted to look at uh, surgeons in hospitals and to see if surgeons get better over time. So here's what they did. They took a look at hundreds of surgeons uh, performing 40,000 procedures, and all the procedures were the same. They were all cardiac bypass surgeries. You know, where they take a vein from your leg and they put it in your heart and they create the bypass. They looked at 40,000 of those procedures among surgeons. And as you know, surgeons are in high demand. And so most of these surgeons were performing these same procedures in multiple hospitals. And here's what they found. There's a 3% mortality rate for these types of procedures on the average. When a surgeon did the procedure in the exact same hospital over and over and over again, that percentage went down. So it moved from 3% to 2% to 1%. But when that surgeon went to a new hospital, it bumped right back up to 3%. As long as they were in the same hospital doing the same procedure, the mortality rate went down. But when they would move to a new hospital, it went right back up. And the question was, why is that? Interestingly enough, while two professors at Harvard were doing this study on surgeons, at almost the exact same time, two other professors were doing a study on financial analysts. And they took about a 1,000 of the, of the top-rated financial analysts on Wall Street. And they said, the book says that these are people who were making between 2 and $5 million a year because they were so good at predicting the market. There's a rating system, I guess, that takes place. I'm not personally familiar with it, but I guess there's a rating system that takes place. And all of these analysts were in the top tier. And they watched their career over a number of years. And what they found, what these two professors found, these researchers found, is that when a financial analyst would change investment banks... When a financial analyst was, was really performing well at one bank so that another bank would recruit them and steal them away, for the next five years, their performance dropped and many of them fell out of the top tier. The market was the same. It was the same business, but their performance dropped and they fell out of the top tier for about five years on average. So the question is why? Why is it that the surgeon at one hospital was an all-star and at the next hospital was very average? And why is it that the financial analyst was an all-star at one bank, but at the next bank was closer to the average? In both studies, they came to the exact same conclusion. What really mattered 
was not the comp was the, the not necessarily the competency of the surgeon or the brilliance of the financial analyst although the surgeons are definitely competent and the financial analysts are definitely smart but what really mattered to separate them was the team that they were on so when a surgeon performed the same surgeon in the same surgery in the same hospital the anesthesiologist who was also very excellent and the surgeon got on the same page and the nurses who were excellent nurses, all got on the same page. And by the time the surgeon had done this procedure over and over and over in the same hospital, the reason the surgeon was, was so good at the procedure is not that the surgeon was brilliant and way better than any other surgeon, but the team that was around the surgeon had come together and what appears on the outside to be one unbelievable brilliant surgeon in reality is a team of people lowering the mortality rate for the people that are going into surgery. And the financial analysts, the few financial analysts who, when they went to big banks, other banks, said to that bank, if you want to recruit me, you got to bring my entire team with me. Those financial analysts stayed in the top tier. But the majority of financial analysts who jumped ship and went to the next bank, they're the ones who dropped for the next five years because they had to rebuild the team. And their success and their ability to analyze the market and make tons of money was very dependent on the people whom they were surrounded by and their ability to work together. In the family of God, we want the individual benefits that come from knowing Jesus Christ. We want the individual benefits that come from knowing him. The joy and the peace, the love, the assurance, the salvation, all of those things, and they're all good. But you know when those things are at their peak? It's when the community that we're a part of is loving and caring for one another the way that God calls us to. So often we look at that and we say, you know what, the cost, the cost of being a part of the community is not worth the benefit. And so I'll go as far as I can. I'll do as much as I can. But the cost of actually loving and caring for other people, the cost of actually taking on another person's burden, the cost of coming in on a Sunday morning, finding the person who is hurting and giving and caring for them is not worth the benefit that I'll receive. But over and over again, this book would come to us and say, oh, no, but it is. The community together will go much further in God's plan than we ever could on our own. You know, when God looked at you and he looked at me and he did the cost-benefit analysis of sending his son to this earth, I'm so glad that he didn't say, you know what, the cost of sending my son to this earth and having him die on a cross is not nearly worth the benefit that these people are going to be able to give back to me because what do we have to give back to God anyway? But he didn't say that. He said the cost of sending my son down to this earth, having him die on the cross, is worth, absolutely worth the benefit of the relationship that will be restored between me and my people. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward to close this morning. And I just want to tell you a quick, a quick story. When we were planting this location, when we were planting this campus, 
I had an opportunity uh, one year at what is called our district council, and that is we're part of the Assemblies of God. Our district is made up of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. There's about 185 churches in the Assemblies of God in those three states. Once a year, all the pastors get together, and we do pastor things. And so we got together, and I had the opportunity one year. uh, This was in 2015, the year that we launched this. This was in May of 2015, a few months before we launched in September. I had the opportunity to get up and speak at that gathering. And I was not speaking on the fact that we were launching a church, but I happened to mention it. When when they introduced me, they said, oh, and, and, you know, Pastor Brian, we're going to launch a a campus in Belmont in the fall. And then I gave my talk. I gave my talk, which really had nothing to do with the fact that we were launching this campus. And when we left that talk, I got two calls from two different pastors. One is named uh, Reverend Timothy Schmidt, and he runs Calvary Christian Church up in Linfield, Massachusetts. The other one is a pastor named Mike Sorsinelli, uh, who pastors uh, New Day Church, and I love where they meet. They meet at the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield. About 700 people that meet at the Basketball Hall of Fame for church every Sunday morning in Springfield. Both those churches, we, we had 50 people. We were going to launch this campus. Both those were big, established churches. And both those pastors called me and said, listen, we heard your talk, and we want to support what you're doing. And they both gave significant contributions to opening this campus. In fact, some of the things that you see, some of the, some of the technology pieces that you see in our room, the only reason they're here is because those two churches partnered with us. And this year, just last month, Because we came in October and we talked about global outreach and you, the church, responded. We were able to give from Mount Hope some pretty large gifts to support a church plant in the city of Boston called Anchor Church that's going. And then another church that's planting in East Hartford, Connecticut this fall. Now, what's the benefit We could look at that and say, what is the benefit to Linfield and what is the benefit to Springfield for them to give this money so that we could plant a church in Belmont? And what is the benefit to us to give a gift to a church that's in in Boston and to give a, a, a gift to a church that is in East Hartford, Connecticut? What is the benefit in all of those things? And it wasn't just those two gifts. We were able to give gifts to missionaries who were coming off the field thanks to your response in October. This just happened a couple weeks ago. Missionaries who are now retiring from the missions field, we were able to give gifts to help toward their retirement because many missionaries come off the field and don't have much saved up. And we were able to support some other things with one-time gifts. Now, because we give that money, it doesn't mean we as individuals are all of a sudden going to have all sorts of peace and joy. But here's what we believe. We believe that when the whole of the community of God and the family of God works together, then his kingdom is built and that we all experience benefits that we could never experience on our own. And I'm so grateful that Calvary Christian Church in Linfield believed that. I'm so grateful that New Day Church in Springfield believed that. I'm so grateful that you're a church that believes that as well. Let me tell you, the cost of interdependence is always greater than the benefit of independence. That the benefit of us coming together will always equal more than the benefit of us staying as individuals. I'm so grateful for the people that don't have children, the ages of our kids' ministry, 
the people who, who don't have kids in that group but are still willing to go down and serve and say the value of having children that know and love Jesus Christ is greater than what it's going to cost me to go down and serve in that place. And there's all sorts of places throughout the life of the church where you as an individual are saying, you know what, it's going to cost me something to do this, but the benefit to the whole is greater than what it's going to cost me. And I think we need to challenge ourselves to say, okay, God did this for us through Jesus Christ. Where in my life, for the sake of the body, for the sake of the family, do I need to say, I need to be willing to risk my own personal satisfaction and well-being for the sake of the whole? Where is God calling you to help somebody? Where is God calling you to reach out? Who is the broken person that you're loving and caring for today? If we do that well, God will do amazing things through us, far more than he could ever do just on our own. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for that truth today, that we are your body, that we are your family, And God, I confess to you today that sometimes I can be so selfish. I can be so self-centered and self-focused. And I can just worry about my my relationship with you and forget the needs of the people around, around me. So God, today, would you open up our eyes to the needs of those in our own community, to the needs of those in the family, and would you give us the strength we need to go and to fight on behalf of the whole community, even if it costs us something initially, even if it takes away our comfort initially, God, would you make us those kind of people who trust that you will bless us and you will benefit us as a whole if we're willing to love and serve one another. And thank you, Lord, for sending your son. Thank you that you did not say the cost is too great, but you value that relationship with us so much that you were willing to have your son come and die on our behalf. We thank you for that. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at mthopebelmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.